Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 280. Firstly, I hope everybody had a very powerful and satiated and saturated month of Tishrei, which that's why it's called Cheder Shashvi, the seventh month Shvi, also comes from the word sated, like Vesavata, Vachalta Vesavata, not just satisfied, but filled up to the brim because it's a month that's filled with holidays, which is why we don't say Tachn until the end of the month, and we're now at the conclusion of the month. Everyone should have a very good Geben Shdyar. I hope you didn't miss me too much. I did miss you. The last two weeks, of course, was Yom Tif, but Yom Tif, uh, obviously, is much more powerful than any program. It itself feeds us and satisfies us and nourishes us and nurtures us with Chassidus itself, living Chassidus of Simchas Teda, and before that, Hishayin Rabbe and Sukkis, which, of course, all internalizes Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah and the entire powerful month of Tishrei. This program is dedicated in honor of Sarita Jacobson upon her birthday today, the 28th of Tishrei, and the birthday of her dear husband, Mendel Jacobson, upon his birthday later in the week, the 3rd of Cheshvan, sponsored by their parents, Rachmiel and Rivka Leah Jacobson. Thank you so much, and may this program serve you well and honor you and everybody else that is listening and that participates because this is a partnership. Your questions, your comments, as it's beginning a new year, it's always important to acknowledge all the support on all levels that we receive, both financial support, of course, and moral support, and spiritual support, and encouragement of this program and its impact, as well as impacted on me and my life. And that's exactly what it is. My life, Chassidus Applied, applying Chassidus to the issues of our life. So this is the first time you're listening or viewing this. I welcome you. And we have a forum where you can submit any question you like, completely anonymously and confidentially, at chassidusapplied.com. That's a new site dedicated to this program and other Hasidic resources, making them all applicable and relevant and uh, actionable in our personal lives, as well as where you can review all previous episodes and all the archives at chassidusapplied.com, the 279 episodes that we've uh, done in the past. There also is other resources, including the essays. Every year we have the essay contest of the last five years. Thank God thousands of essays have been submitted from people from all walks of life, from all over the world, doing exactly that, applying chassidus to a contemporary issue or challenge. And other resources, feel free to browse around. And as I said, I welcome you if you have not been part of this yet. If you have been, it's always new, fresh material, and it's always uh, available anytime, 24-6. So with that, that's what we'll begin by speaking about, which is we're right now in the last final days of this powerful month of Tishrei, Tov Shin Pei, beginning of a new decade, 5780. And um, we talked about this during the month before Rosh Hashanah, as well as the last program, which we did, was right before Yom Kippur. So the most obvious thing to address is the end of Tishrei, this last day, the post-holiday season, the month of Cheshvan, which we're entering, we just blessed yesterday, Shabbos Bereshis, and of course, Pashas Noyach, which we will be reading this coming Shabbos, and this is the week of Pashas Noyach. All of it converges together as being, we'll call it one word, a bridge, a bridge. It's a bridge between the powerful holiday energy on all levels, whether it's, the, whether it's the renewal of Rosh Hashanah, the sanctity of Yom Kippur, the joy of Sukkot, the exuberance of Simchas Teda, 
all being channeled, like a good interface and a bridge, into, we'll call it, the regular year. Now, remember, everything regular is not really regular, but it appears regular. It's the regular routines, the regular patterns. And the goal, of course, is, is to take the energy, the new energy that we received in this month, this holiday month, and infuse it and energize our regular, that our regular should be irregular in a good way. Our ordinary should become extraordinary. The, 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 yes, to seeing the ordinary, the extraordinary in the ordinary. And that's what this powerful month of Tishrei is about. So there's riding on the wings of Tishrei and then there's carrying it over. So this period we're in is a bridge. The year the Rebbe had the heart attack, Tov Shalamet Ches, which would be the equivalent of 1977, with Shmini night. And the Rebbe did not fabring, as he usually did the coming days, before HaKafas and Samchus then Shabbos Bereshis, because of the heart attack, but he spoke to us from his room the night when Simchas Torah ended. After the holiday ended, he spoke with a microphone. And then the custom was every Shmatsoy Shabbos after that, every Saturday night after Shabbos, a little while after Shabbos, the Rebbe would speak from his room. And this went on until the Rebbe came out of his room, finally came, went back home, Rosh Kislev, which we celebrate. And then the first Fabreng, Yutas Kislev, when the Rebbe came back to 770 in the regular Fabreng. But there's an interesting thing that took place then, besides many other things, that I noticed, and this was one of the, my early years in working in the Sichas and helping and beginning to get involved in a more serious level, because the Rebbe edited, he asked to edit those talks, including the one that he delivered right a day after the heart attack, Mitzvah Yisim So we have them edited today. They're all published in the end of uh, the editions to volume 20 in Lukut Sichas, both the Mimer and the Sich of all those weeks. But the interesting thing, one among many, was the way the Rebbe spoke about the transition. So there's a custom, and Lubavitch was the custom, as the Rebbe cites there and many other places, that Metzoyi Simchas they would announce, Vayakov Holoch Ladarke. And Yaakov went on his way. It's a verse in the end of Pashas Vayetze, that Yaakov went on his way. And this is referring to that now we're going from the high holiday season on our way back home, back to our routines, back to our regular lives. So it's a nice expression, but if you think about it, it has a lot more to it. It has a lot more to it than just a nice line. It's about carrying over in our journey to wherever we're going that which we experienced. So in this case, interestingly, the Yaakov Holchadaki is actually going from Choran back to Israel. And here you could almost say we're going from Israel in the conceptual context of Tishrei as being a holy month, uh, going into the weekdays. But the point is still the same. It's carrying over that experience. You can say Choran, where Yaakov built his family, which is Mitoshe Shlema, a complete family. All the Shvatim except Binyamin were born by Lovan in Choran, outside of Israel. So there's a power to that, and he carries that over. But without going into the details of that, the, specific, the main point here is that we need to have a transition. And that's the key to the biggest question of all, how do you maintain that high, that energy, that inspiration, that passion? Which is really a question all year round. Whenever you're passionate, you get inspired, you get excited. We all know it easily dissipate. And here's the question, the question the Rebbe addresses so many, every year literally, including that year in 1977, how do you carry it over? And the way to carry it over is we don't fake it. We're not going to make believe that Tishrei is in Cheshvan and in Kislev and Tevis, because the rest of the year is not Tishrei. It doesn't have a Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and a Sukkot, and a Shemini Atzeres, and a Simchus However, you create a bridge. You realize that you carry 
the expression of the Frida Kerebbe that the Rebbe cited often, that we fill ourselves up, we pack our bags in this, whole, in this saturated month, and then we unpack. Fananda pakan de peklach. We unpack the baggage, the luggage that we gathered into the weekdays. And for that, we need a transition, a bridge, an interface. And that year, especially in 1977, the Rebbe spoke about the interface not once, but almost every week. He said the first interface begins, says in Vikocha, right after Yom Kippur. As we go into Sukkot, it's already a journey from the days of awe, Yom Neroim, into the days of joy. Then there's the transition into the klita that absorbs and contains and channels it further. Then there's the Vayakov Darkei and Shabbos Bereshis, or Isur Chag even, the day after Yom Then Shabbos Bereshis, because Bereshis is still the end of the month of Tishrei, but it's Bereshis is the beginning of the year and the beginning of creation. It's a bridge between the end of the Torah, when we finish on Simchus Torah, and the beginning, which we read immediately, beginning a new cycle of learning, of reading and learning. And then there's the bridge, the Rebbe continued, on Zayin Cheshven. I'm sorry, Rosh Chedesh Cheshven. Because you're still in the month of Tishrei, so you're still under the aura of that powerful month, which is where we are now. Then the next one is Zayin Cheshven, which is when we begin to say Geshem because... We do not want, we want to make sure that the last Jews arrived in Nahar Pros in the days of the temple. Euphrates River was the last Jews arrived there by Zion Chesron, the ones that made Aliyah Laregel, that made the pilgrimage to Israel, to Jerusalem. So all these are transitions. So you could say, which one is it? The answer is true transitions are many. Look in technology, whenever you see an interface, there's no one interface. How many interfaces are there when you put on a switch and electricity runs into your appliances? There's many, many switches that are taking place. The same thing in the human body. Because the true healthy interface is one that allows for a balanced and harmonious integration of the past, well, the, 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 of one entity to another. If the surge is too strong, if the flow goes too strong, it'll, it can create a power surge that will damage the circuits. If it's too slow, you won't have enough energy. So you need the proper channels and, and interfaces. And that's really a principle in Chassidus in general talks about Seder Shtalshalus, the stepping stones. Think of it like a teacher has to exactly spoon feed in the proper way to the student. And as the student grows, you give more and more. So as we move from a very powerful month, a spiritually powerful, energetic month, into a, the mundane, let's call it that way, you need many transitions that help, um, help, pave, help uh, pace ourselves so we can truly absorb and properly integrate the experiences. And that's the key. If you try to do it too fast, too much, it won't work. Too little, then you won't have the power. So that's what we have here, and that's the period we are in, and we'll be going into Shabbos Bereshis, we'll be going into the end of Tishrei in a few days, Cheshvan, and so on. The Rebbe continued even after Parshas Bereshis, he said, Bereshis is still the creation. The real Vayakov HaChadarke is Parsha Noyach. Because that's outside of creation. That's when the marble takes place. There's already, we see the hostility, the difficulties, the challenges, the corruption of the world. And then Lech Lecha is yet another Yaakov Halachadaki. Lech Lecha is Avram Avinu's journey. So we'll be talking about it, but it's a very fascinating way of looking how we carry over. So the key thing is to not forget what has happened, but to take all the experiences and the special inspirations that we gained, gathered and gained and gleaned and now channel it in through this interface called the Vyakov Chodarke, the journey, into our journey to wherever it is that we're going, both physically, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally. 
And that's essentially the significance of the period in which we are right now. Um, of course, Cheshvan, is the Rebbe explains in some beautiful ways, that Cheshvan goes to the other extreme. If Tishrei is filled with holidays, the next month has no holidays. Because that's the true test. Have we really appreciated? Have we really learned? Because as long as we're riding on the high on the holidays, we don't yet know where you are at. Here we have no holidays, and now we see the real litmus test of how much we've really experienced it is when there's no holidays to ride on and you're bringing those holidays in. And of course, Pashaneach, as I just mentioned, is uh, unfortunately, tragically, is the destruction of the world because of the sins. The world was filled with, the, with corruption and crime. But that only to prepare the world for Noach and his family to rebuild it, a new world. So it begins another Vyakov Hal dealing with that challenges. So we're not ignoring the difficulties. As long as you're talking about creation of the world in Bereshis, you're talking about a world God created. And every day is Tev, Tev Ma'id. It's a good creation and a beautiful creation. Then, of course, you have the fall when Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge. But essentially, month of the, the Pasha of Bereshis is still, especially the beginning of it, is about God's creation. It's in Noyach where we see the consequences of the negative and tragic consequences of human behavior. That, and then we still have the hope to rebuild and, regr- and grow. So all this is part of the transition as we move from Tishrei into the regular year. The lessons are many personal lessons, collective lessons of hope, of renewal, and knowing that it's not just when you're inspired, but you can carry inspiration. If you do it properly, you can carry it throughout the whole year. Like exactly that, unpack the, the, the peklach unpack the luggage, the baggage that you gathered, the goods, the resources that we gathered during this month of Tishrei, and then unpack it each in its place so you carry that into all the months of the year. Because Tishrei, as we know, is the letters Reishis. Reishis means like a Reish, a head, like Rosh Hashanah, like Bereishis, all the same idea. The head is not just the beginning of the year, it's the central nervous system, is the control center of the year. So what happens in Tishrei really can influence the rest of the year, but you, we can't live in the head. The head has to carry forth into the rest of the body. The rest of the body in time is the days of the year, the months and days of the year. The days, the hours, the minutes, the seconds, that it all is infused and directed by the central control center, by the control center of the mind of Tishrei. And as Chassidus explains in the number of my modern from the Alter Rebbe and other Rabbeim cited, the idea that from Rosh Hashanah we get Kabbalah sale, the idea of, of um, accepting and embracing a cause greater than ourselves, something greater than ourselves, that from Rosh Hashanah is a rush for the whole year, we learn from that, the head. From that we derive that type of sense of purpose, higher purpose from Rosh Hashanah. From Yom Kippur we receive Kedusha, sanctity and holiness into the entire year. And from Sukkot we gain Simcha, joy, for the entire year. And now is the time, the transition, to make sure that each of these is unpacked properly, integrated, internalized in our personal lives, in our communities, or wherever we return to, both physically and emotionally and conceptually. Okay. Some episodes where I've spoken about this in previous years are 38, 39, I'm sorry, 85, 135, 184, and 230. I want to just mention one or two uh, also announcements, some housekeeping. Some people have pointed out to me that they listen to this, not they don't view it, they listen on podcast, whether they're running or exercising or driving or traveling somewhere. 
And it's very annoying when they hear that I start referring to other episodes because they're in the middle of exercise or in the middle of a journey. Very difficult to go click on those episodes. So I decided I'll start announcing the episodes at the end of the discussion. But on the other hand, there is cross-references because the fact is some of these topics were spoken about and I like to be complete. And I can't, I'm not going to repeat everything that I've said about this topic or other topics. So I will mention it, but hopefully in a way that's not... Um, it's not intrusive or in any way con- this distracting. It does, uh, doesn't allow you the, the flow of this program. Um, additionally, I want to also point out that um, as we move along, there's, of course, topics that we've addressed, sometimes almost completely addressed, and I have no choice, but I could just refer there, so there will be times where I do that, and I apologize if it's an inconvenience, but I think it's much more logical to do so. And finally, I want to say is that there's been many of you have asked and even clamored that I create, that we create something in, in writing, a text or some type of encyclopedia almost of Hasidic application to these ideas. And we have themes literally from A to Z. What we're really looking for now is sponsorships for that because it's not a, it's not a small project. It's a serious project. So if anyone's interested in a sponsorship, please contact me directly. And you can do so at Simon, it's my name, Simon or Simon at MeaningfulLife.com. And um, I'll be happy to address it. And it would be a great honor to partner with anyone who's interested in that. Be a great schus, go serve many people very well. Because in writing, whether it's online or in published work, you can actually access everything in one place instead of cross-referencing, just collect it all together. So that's one of the projects among many other ambitious ones that you will be hearing about through the year that we are looking to do in the year Tafshin Pei. If you have any other suggestions or ideas, please don't hesitate to share them. And uh, we consider everything, and I consider it a privilege to hear from you, feedback, critique, comments, and suggestions, and anything else that goes into that category. So thank you for that. So since it's a post-holiday uh, program, essentially, so I'm, I'm going to cover mostly topics that came, that came in, questions that came in throughout the holiday season and afterwards, and much more than usual. So I will try to cover as many as we can. And, uh, and then we'll, of course, return the following weeks into the regular flow of questions that have come in. Some are backed up, so please bear with me. I will address them all, and I'm going to do so as we move forward. You can't do it all in one shot, so... That's it, that's it. So don't, but don't in any way give up on me and give up on the program. Your questions will be addressed, so don't hesitate to write. Divine forgiveness versus human forgiveness. So this is a question in two parts. How can we be sure that other people have forgiven us as God forgives us? And the second part of the question is, during the high holidays, why is there more focus on our relationship with God than on our relationship with each other? So let me read it in uh, full. Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, during Yom Kippur this year, I was struck by the following realization. We spend so much time worrying whether or not Hashem will forgive us. We say extra tehillim during El, we say slichas, we fast, we clap al-chet, technically is the confession by Vidui when we clap al-chet on Yom Kippur, and we take it all very seriously. But honestly, what are we so, what, what are we so worried about? We are assured that Hashem is chanun hamar belisleach. That means He's kind and He's filled, mar abundantly forgiving. And has 13 attributes of mercy and we are actually certain He will forgive our sins. The Altar Rebbe says in the Geras that if we were not certain of this, 
it would be a bracha levatola. So I get us a tshuva, actually. Meaning a bracha, a wasted bracha. When we say, chan amar So we're sure that God will, I'm certain that God will forgive us. I think we can safely say that Hashem will forgive our sins and give us another chance. But we cannot say the same about human beings. Human beings are very sensitive and their feelings can be hurt pretty easily. It can, ne- it can be very difficult to forgive someone if they have done something seriously wrong against you. Nevertheless, we are told not to be achzarim, which means not to be cruel, but rather to forgive. We are told to emulate Hashem, God, and be rachum v'chanun, compassionate and kind as well. But if we weren't instructed to do so, would we really forgive? It certainly can be difficult. So my question is, why is there so little focus on fixing up the Ben Adam Lechavere and so much focus on the Ben Adam Lamokim? Ben Adam Lechavere means between person and person, and so much focus on between person and God. Yes, Shulchan Aruch instructs us to ask our acquaintances for forgiveness, but there's no official ritual to carry this out. And there's little focus on it in relation to the whole vibe of Yom Kippur, even though Allah makes it pretty clear that all the tshuva and fasting in the world would not help in an issue of Ben Adam Lechavere. Exactly right. So I'm not sure why you're saying it's not a focus. It says that specifically, because God can only forgive of sins that God that we did against God, but not ones that we do against each other. I saw a post on social media lamenting the fact that supposedly from people are obsessed with God on Yom Kippur and do not ensure that they are acting in a polite, honest, and just manner and just manner with their fellow people. This is a travesty. I think if there were a ritual such as Mishleyach Monas on Purim where we send gifts, where people actually have to send a goodwill gesture to those that have wronged, it might, be help, it might help the situation somewhat. But seriously, what can we do to help raise awareness of Ben Adam Lechavere, between person and person? It is so crucially important, and I believe it should become the new focus on Yom Kippur. Anyway, I'd be interested to hear your take on this matter. Many thanks. Okay, let me address that very directly. So first of all, absolutely that we begin everything with us being mortals and flawed, and that's exactly why it says, following God's ways, because we're learning to improve, we're look, seeking to improve ourselves and live up to a higher standard. If we were just to succumb to our mortal and limited, flawed human, human nature, there'd be a lot of us that would be very unpleasant. So the whole point, and especially of the holiday season, is as we embrace God, we means not just embracing and being good with God, it's being good with, we're emulating God's ways. And that is absolutely an integral component. For anyone to separate and say, there's between you and God, between you and others, yes, technically, it comes down to that. But if you look in Pantanya, chapter 32, Pedic Lev, Pedic Love, of the Alter Rebbe Tanya, what does he say? That Hillel said the entire Torah is about love. Is love. He said it in the negative, don't do unto others that which you dislike being done to you. That's the whole Torah said, and everything else is commentary. So he asked the question, that applies to Ben Adam, well, it's implied the question, he doesn't ask it explicitly. That applies to all mitzvahs that are between person and person. What about the things like Shabbos and kosher and karbonis and prayer and offerings? What does that have to do with another person? What does that have to do with not doing to others that you don't want done to yourself? So he says, because Av, the basis of Av, love, is transcendence, is going outside of yourself. So all of the Torah is about that your nefesh, your spirit should be primary and your material body and your material need should be secondary. And that's all the mitzvahs, including Shabbos and Kashrus and even the Mokim. So in truth is, they're really integrally bound. Basically, put it bluntly, that if someone loves God 
and is good with God, but is not good with other people, they don't love God. And God is not happy. If you love me, love what I love, which is my creatures. So that's a serious hypocrisy and a serious dissonance to focus on. Now, why people do that? That's due to their own cultural, easy way. Sometimes it has nothing to do with godliness. It has to do with your own selfishness. You can have religious selfishness too. That's why Chassidus makes a point that everything needs Aveda. Don't just fall back on your routines and habits, even religious habits. The key to everything is being a more sensitive human being. So if you see someone who, Yom Kippur, is very holy in every possible way, but is not polite to other people, I don't, you know, I'm not taking away from what they are, but it's not complete, let's be honest. And maybe you can question what their relationship with God is as well in that context. Someone to hurt another person in the name of, so to speak, because I'm getting closer to God, Come on. The whole reason Avram Avinu turned away from God, and we learned from that, to greet the guests, which he thought were just Arabs traveling in the desert. Not, he didn't know they were angels. We learned from that, the G'dela Achnosos Archim, greeting guests is greater than greeting the Shekhinah. And as I've discussed a number of times, how did Avram know that? Because he knew it fundamentally, in his essence he knew it. He didn't have to think about it. That to ignore a stranger, to ignore a person, is ignoring God. So to stay with God that came to visit him and ignore them, it's an essentially an affront to God, not just an affront to them. So it goes hand in hand, both of the benom l'chaver benadim l'mokim. As far as forgiveness goes, yes, it's difficult. Of course it's not hard for God to forgive, which kavyochel we say it's hard because Moshe had to pray for it 80 days until Hashem finally said, God finally said, salachti kidvarecha. Because kavyochel, so to speak, like we say, koshek kriyas yamsuf. Why, Kriyas Yamsa, parting the sea is kosher? Difficult for God? But based on the laws of nature that God created, it's so to speak difficult because he does not want to suspend his own laws. So for him to see that we betrayed him, whether it was the building of the golden calf or in any other way, forgiveness does not come easy. That's why it takes the work of tshuva. But we, yes, we can be assured that God will certainly forgive us, as you point out. Now we as humans have to now emulate that. It may be difficult, because someone may have really hurt you, but that's exactly why we have the whole simen in Shulchan Aruch, Hilchas Erev Yom Kippurim, that speaks about forgiveness, the obligation to, to ask for forgiveness and the obligation to forgive. So I'm not sure why you say it's not a ritual. It's more than a ritual. It's a mitzvah. Yes, Mishalach Monus Purim is a specific thing. You send gifts. But here we're talking about the beginning of the year, so it's much more than just sending gifts. It's actually introspection and accountability and the remorse that you describe and the humility that you show when you approach someone who you've hurt. And that is a mitzvah. That's the mitzvah of Yom Kippur. And that is absolutely necessary to experience a full Yom Kippur. So both things, that the, both parts of your question, very good question. However, the fact that people don't live up to this, that's their weakness. But the Torah expects from us to become divine. Forgiveness is divine. It's transcending your feelings. Is doing what Yosef did, that even though his brother sold him into slavery and almost killed him, instead of showing revenge and even bad, ill feelings, he told him, it was not you, it was God that led me here. He was able to transcend. So the, how do you get that? You get, a power, you get that power from being created in the divine image and acting divine. And that's what's expected, not expected little things from us. We're expected to rise to the occasion in the, in the greatest possible way. Okay, I hope that covers it. I will refer to episodes 36, 84, and 279, where more I discuss forgiveness, and there I also refer to many other. Forgiveness is a topic we've talked about a number of times here because it's so essential in Chassidus applied forgiveness 
such a powerful principle in Torah and Judaism, especially Yom Kippur, and this month, this past month, and of course uh, throughout the year in our relationships between each other. Now, next question. The priestly blessing, Birchas Koyanim, which we did a number of times through this season, the Yom Tev or the Yom Tevim, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, of course. So Birchas Koyanim, so, the, so uh, the question is, what exactly is happening when the Koyanim give the priestly blessing? And why is it that we are not allowed to look at them while they do it? They cover themselves in the talus, and we're not supposed to look. So the answer briefly is when they make the priestly blessing and they hold their fingers a certain way, which is the way that Hashem gave the power. He told Moshe to tell Adam and his children, this is how you shall bless them. This means both the words and the rest of the words and also what, how to hold their hands. That was because the Shekhinah flows through the hands. So what's happening is the Kehanim HaShluchim, Shluchim HaRachmona, the Shluchim of God. There's actually two opinions when we say at the end of Birchus Kainim, Vaniyavorachim, is the bracha going the bracha on the Kainim, or the I will bless the Eden. The Rebbe has in the brachas that he gave Erev Yom Kippur various years after Mincha and also to the Bochum discussion on these two opinions. But either way, it's the Shechina that brings the blessing, obviously. But the Kahanim have that, they're the Shluchim, the, shluchim, the messengers that God chose. He chose Bochar, he chose Aaron, the high priest, among the Levites themselves to be kehanim, to serve, and one of their serving is to be channels of the blessing. And Kabbalah talks about how the five hands, I'm sorry, the five fingers on both hands is ten fingers of the ten spheres. And when you split them in the, in the traditional way that a kohen does on both hands, is the amshacha of three and two in both hands, and that's how the Shekhinah rests and dwells among the Jewish people through these kehanim. When the Shekhinah rests, you don't look at it. There's a certain sanctity to it. It's like Kodesh Kadashim. You close your eyes. Like we close our eyes when we say Shema. You close your eyes when something very sacred is happening because it's not about, it's not, it's not, it's not a uh, tourist attraction. It's not about sightseeing. It's about awe and respect. And whenever you stand in awe and respect, there's a certain humility. And part of that is not looking at where the Shekhinah rests. Not because, God forbid, there's anything wrong with looking, anything wrong with that, but it's a place where our eyes should close and not look at as that Shekhinah presents itself and flows to us, channels to us through the Kehanim, through the high priests, through the priests. So that's the brief answer for this. And uh, there's my modem, Suyudechim Kedush from the Tafresh Pezayin, my modem of the Geula after Yud Beis Tamas, one of them was in that Posik. And other memorim that this uh, idea is discussed, you can look it up in different places in Erchus, in Erech, in the entry in Birchus Kainim and Kainim in Sefer Alakutim from Samach Tzedek, and other places. I also spoke about the priestly blessing in episodes 191, 193. There was more why we connected to dreams, which is what the congregation community says when the, as the Kainim are blessing us at the end of the blessing. Okay, next question, also following up the holidays. The Rebbe's Sefer Teter. Why do we kiss the Rebbe's Sefer Teter? After waiting in line for a long time to kiss the Rebbe's Sefer Teter, talking about a 770, so the Rebbe would dance Simchus Teter with a small Sefer Teter wrapped in a white shawl. So, so now the custom is, even then was the custom, uh, during the day after the, after the Simchus Teter, after that coffee, and now especially today, 
that the sefer is held by someone and people go by to kiss it. So they're saying, after waiting in line for a long time to kiss the Rebbe Sefer please can you give insight into it and its background? Thanks. So briefly, let's just begin with why do we kiss a Sefer in general? When we take the Sefer from the Ark to the reading table on Shabbos or weekdays, Monday and Thursday, or Yom you see anyone, when people go over to kiss it, or um, it passes by, you kiss it. The reason you kiss it is because you're kissing Gedusha. It's holiness. Something you love, you kiss, just like we dance with it on Sikh Mastera. We dance with it. Why do we dance with the Sefer Teda? It's not just a book for us. It's a way of life. It's Teda is our life and our sustenance. Teda is Chaim. So we kiss it like we would kiss a child, that we kiss a life. Especially Teda that has been a witness to all the greatest things and has traveled with us throughout history. So in every circumstances, we hold it, we hold it there in an ark, we cover it up. I said before, we don't look at it, except when we read it, it's protected like in the ark in the temple. So when it comes our way, in the world in which we live, we show our priorities. Instead of kissing things that are either inappropriate altogether, or even neutral things, what we kiss, what we embrace, what we love, what we dance with, what we celebrate with, is a safer tale. They say it's only a tate, it's only a scroll, it's parchment. But that parchment has been sanctified. And that's why I say for tater, that's puzzle, you don't just throw it out, God forbid. It's a whole process. You have to bury it. Why? Because it has kedusha in it. Once the Hebrew and the holy letters were written on the parchment, it's become a say tater, it's holy forever. So it's not just when it was written for its entire life and forever. Kedusha lezazim kedem. Kedusha always remains, especially in a thing like a sefer teda. This is also why we stand up for it, out of respect, not because of the part, because it, it's carrying to us, it's carrying for us, the words, the divine and godly words of the Torah, of uh, the words of God. Now, when it comes to the Rebbe sefer teda, which means the teda that the Rebbe danced with, and we know that whatever a Rebbe touches, even his furniture, even his chairs, his table, as the Friedrich Rebbe tells a powerful story in the first Maimir, Reish is going Amalek, Tofresh Pei, which is exactly 100 years ago, Bez Nissan time, after the Rebbe Rashab was nostalgic. So he tells that, that exactly that, like it says in Chesidus about Eris and Kelem Datzilis, Kedushalei Zazimim Kema. Even if the Eir is not visible, it still is retained by the containers. He tells the story as a child, he saw his father go into the room of the Rebbe Marash, dressed up with a gartle and a kapote. It's very moving, you can read it there yourself. And he saw him whispering as if he spoke to him when it was in his lifetime. He says, because the, the, the table, the chairs, the physical room are all saturated with Dusha. So a Sefer Teira that a Rebbe danced with, our Rebbe danced with, especially on this most special day of the year, Simchas Teira, the Rebbe's day. If you go over there, Shpizen, Shmini Yatzeres associates with the Friedrich Rebbe. Shmini Simchas Teira with the Rebbe. And the Rebbe danced with it. And the sweat and tears and joy and celebration it carries with it who knows how much power. So we kiss it, it's some way to connect with it. It's not just a ritualistic thing, and the more obviously you think about it, the more power you can get, you can actually derive power. But this is, let's not make this into anything magical, anything mumbo-jumbo. It's simply understanding and valuing something that carries so much power in it, and we respect it in that way. So kissing it is a form of adoration and adulation, and of course respect, and trying to live up to what it says in the Torah, of course, throughout the year. Like I said, we unpack it. It's not just to kiss it, 
but to bring that kiss and that connection back to, into our lives, that we live with a love for Torah, not just follow the rules with duty, but we do it with passion and with love and with excitement and with vibrancy. Okay. Next. We're moving along. We covered some Im Kippur things. Now we covered the Bichas Kem. Now we covered... The, so here's a Simchas Teda, post-Simchas Teda question, which also gives me the opportunity to address it from many angles. And this is already going to be a little uh, more, um, let's put it this way, a little more uh, lively, perhaps. And I'm sure I'll elicit all kinds of different comments, which I look forward to. And that is the issue of drinking. Drinking. What do, you th- what do you think has caused the unhealthy obsession with alcohol on Simchus Teda? That's the brief, brief the question. And the second part of the question, which we'll talk about, is how should we address drinking problems in communities and kiddush clubs in shul? So you get what I'm saying. So let me read it out. I'm taking three of, I don't know, I've probably over 50, 60 questions that have come in over the years on this topic. I'm taking out three because they reflect a lot of what others have written. And we've also talked about it, but not in this direct context. But it's a good thing to talk about. Something, of course, we have directed straight from the Rebbe on this. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, what do you think has caused the unhealthy obsession with alcohol on Simchus Teda? I just, I just don't get it. If we are actually celebrating the Teda, then why do so many people think that getting drunk is the correct way to celebrate Simchus Teda when the Teda expressly forbids getting drunk in a debased manner? It just doesn't make sense. Honestly, it seems people spend more time clutching whiskey and vodka bottles than holding a Sefer Teda, or any other Sefer for that matter. They ridicule you if you don't make Kiddush on Mashke. It's an alcohol. And they have turned the Mashke into some sort of Chefzer Shal an object, a holy object. It's ridiculous and obscene. A local minya where I live organized an initiative where everybody donates a bottle of Mashke to the shul to be consumed during Simchas Teda. Imagine if they would have donated Sfarim, that's holy books, instead of alcohol. Yes, actual Teda. Or given Zdoka to a worthy cause, charity to a worthy cause, then promote alcohol consumption in the name of Chesidishkeit. Seriously, this Simchas Mashke business has gotten out of hand and it needs to stop. Some quasi-Talmudic quotes to encapsulate this sorry state of affairs. Sisu v'simcha v'simcha state of v'tnu kovid lishikurim. Okay, he's basically, it's a play of words where it says, you should celebrate the Simchas Teda and give honor to Teda. He's saying, what they're doing is giving honor to drunks. That's a play on the expression that anyone who did not see the dancing of Simchas Mesa She'eva, the Rusukis, did not see joy in their t- lifetime. So he says, someone who did not get drunk on Simchas Teda did not see joy in their days. This is all obviously puns, that he's trying to negate this uh, questioner. Tragic. That he's a play on words on Purim. It says that a person is responsible to get drunk to the point they can't recognize the difference between the blessing of Mordechai and the curse of Homa. So he says here, the blessing, a person is responsible to get drunk on Simchas to the point they don't know the difference between a Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name, and Chil Hashem, desecrating God's name. God forbid. So the truth is, this is not my taste, quote those, but this is part of the note. So I get the point, he's angry and upset, and legitimately so to some extent. So let me continue this note. One thing that struck me as I was pondering this is that the whole reason the women were separated from the men in the Beis Amigdash 
during Simchas Beis HaSheva was to prevent frivolous behavior in a holy place during a holy time. Well, it seems that this, that, that was a massive failure because men are acting in worse than frivolous fashion in our shuls on Simchas Teda by imbibing with alcohol and educating our children to think that Simchas Teda is actually about alcohol and not Teda. So why don't we put a stop to it, just as the Tanaim did in the Beis Amigdash, to combat the pritzus and halalus of their time, the frivolous behavior in their time. If we don't, then why is this behavior accepted, but women dancing with the Torah modestly is not? Part of the problem is the idea that there must be a fabrengen before our kafas. Is this seriously necessary? Do people actually have more kavana or simcha while dancing after the fabrengen? If not, then what is the point? It just prolongs the day-night and shows that eating and drinking are more important than actual dancing besimcha, with joy. If they would just do our kafas first, then everyone could participate and those who wish to fabreng later could do so without inconveniencing anyone. It would also help those men with families be finished at shul earlier to tend to their wives and children, assuming they still care about them. To be sure, I have no issues with saying L'chaim in a moderate fashion on Simchas but sadly, it has turned into an obsession. The Teda is meant to be the Iker, the primary thing, but has become the Tafel, the secondary. Second fiddle to Weiser and Geller. Weiss, white, uh, like vodka, white uh, drink, and Geller is yellow, which is like uh, scotch. I do not think it's a coincidence that Ashmin says we say L'chaim v'loy l'movis. L'chaim to life, but not to death. Okay, nice touch. Anyway, enough of my rant, which has probably cost me the popular vote. Apologies for being a party pooper, but I believe this issue must be addressed. Many thanks for your inspiring program. A good yard. I read it exactly as it is, and, uh, and I'm happy that a person is so blunt. And I think this is a good platform for it. So let me just comment, and then I'll talk about the next two questions in the same uh, family. A lot of what you write I totally agree with. Mashke, even in the holiest time it was taken by the greatest chassidim, it was always a tofel. It was never an ikr. Once it's become something that more primary, obviously it's completely unacceptable. There's also the social element. It's become a social thing, which is for sure not a tater approach. The little mashke we take is meant to be to be Yetzir, because it does loosen the heart, so to speak, and open a person up. It weakens the Nefesh Abamis, it says in the Sichas, but with moderation. Now, this is even before the Rebbe came into the picture. Then the Rebbe made a Gzeda, which he didn't say once, but he said numerous times, that no one should drink more than four little cups. And the Rebbe was repulsed when he heard that people make Kiddush on a full cup of Mashkin. And the Rebbe has a letter about it, and this exactly is the focus, because it's become an end in itself, and especially we live in a world today where alcohol is becoming a problem. We'll soon talk about that in other, the other comments on this issue. So I agree with you in general, and I also agree, however, that you have, we also uh, uh, agree. I also want to make a more important comment. The reason there's a fabrengen before a kofis is not our own creation. The Rebbe fabreng before a kofis. But if it's done in a rebbeshah way, meaning in a holy way, in a sacred way, in a humble way, so what you're writing is, yes, it's become an epidemic in many ways and it's caused a lot of problems. You don't even mention the alcoholism that it's caused, people to become addicted, alcoholics. Where there for sure has nothing to do with holiness. Then it's become something just a dependency like any, like any, uh, alcohol, uh, any addictive substance. But when you have a from the Rebbe, I don't even know what there's more to talk about. We're talking to chsidim, isn't what the Rebbe says the most important thing? So I'm not sure where there's leniency around this. 
Now, I understand Simcha's Tater is a little lighter attitude and so on, but nobody comments and it's become something that is, I totally agree. Now, what to do about it? I don't think Vur is the right way to go with very strict discipline. I think we have to educate people. First, what, what Tater says. What Simcha's Tater is really all about. What Mashke means. What the Rebbe said about it. The more educated people are, and this is one of the reasons for this program, I think that alone will have a strong impact. So we have to share with others. If you know someone that you feel has gone over the line, why don't you share with them a few sikhs of the Rebbe instead of yelling at them. It's not the way. Then it becomes a debate. It becomes egos and pride and so on. Point them out. Point them to sikhs. I spoke about this a number of times. Episodes 134 through 135 and 1247. And I believe I cited some of the Rebbe's talks, but if not... I'm happy to provide talks of the Rebbe. I would just use this as an opportunity to educate our children, and of course adults as well. So that's what I want to say about this. Let's take the other two, and then I'll comment some more. Question number two in this regard was educating Hasidic parents and teens of the seriousness of alcohol abuse. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I want to thank you for the important work you are doing. I truly find your practical and sensible approach in answering questions. Recently, I think he wanted to add a word probably. Recently I witnessed a disturbing event at my grandchild's wedding. My 16-year-old grandson got drunk and passed out. It was very scary and upsetting. I don't want to go into more details. My question is, how do you convince father of child of seriousness of the harm caused by this? How do we educate teen Aksidisha fathers of seriousness of alcohol abuse in order to prevent this from happening again? Thank you for all your help in dealing with confusing issues of this generation. And then finally, for now, one more. Drinking problems in communities and kiddush clubs in shul. Dear, hi Rabbi Jacobson. My community has a drinking problem. I'm a member of an Anash community and I am disturbed by the widespread acceptance and even encouragement of drinking. I'm referring to being as well as a shul, I'm referring to be in as well as a shul-sanctioned kiddush club during the time of Avtaira, where members of shul, both older and younger men, go and have a sponsored kiddush with a dvartaira, presenting the whole event as a legitimate endeavor. This behavior bothers me as I fear the example it sets for the bochim who witness this behavior, as the kiddush club is not performed in a discreet manner. In addition, it concerns me as to the impact this has on the families of the community, where children think it is normal behavior and that shul is a place for drinking. In my opinion, this comes from a drinking culture that is created and fostered within the yeshivas, which then evolves into this behavior. Am I wrong? Is this kosher, quote-unquote, kosher form of kiddush club appropriate if it helps bring people together for advartate and positive bonding? If not, how can this be addressed? What place does alcohol have within the confines of Anash and provide a medium of bonding. Okay, well, look, this may be going uphill battle, and yes, uh, man, not everyone's going to like these points, but let's go back to what I said from the Rebbe. To answer any question, what is right and what is wrong, we all can state our opinions. We may be repulsed by something and find out that's a mitzvah to do it. You just have to learn what it's about. But that's not the case. The Rebbe made it very clear. And that's all that's relevant to us. We're not the Mitla Rebbe's Chassidim, we're not the Alta Rebbe's Chassidim, we're the Rebbe's Chassidim. This doesn't mean we're not Chassidim of them, but the Rebbe added something, and he made a gzeda. I said a decree, he called it. To the point he didn't let people go on a talucha, because he said, it's one of my inyanim. You want to be connected to me, you have to follow what I suggest. 
He didn't let people go on Merkishlichus. And other things, people, why? Because the Rebbe made it very clear. So let's start with that because that doesn't matter whether there's an explanation or explanation. Even if we don't understand the Rebbe, and we can absolutely, by the way, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, that's the Rebbe's statement, and that's it. So where's this room for this new uh, license to just drink frivolously, even if it's not frivolous, the Rebbe. The Rebbe didn't say that if you're learning Tater, you're Fabrenging, you can drink as many cups as you want. He didn't say that. He said, Fabreng, and I'm giving power that you can do it with a little mashke, a few little cups that obviously cannot cause, uh, cause um, uh, intoxication. Now, there were times the Rebbe took off the Xeda. That's the Rebbe's achrais. It's not ours. We don't have that power to do it. So based on that, all these new customs, whether it's a bain Friday evening, people coming to shul smelling from alcohol, or it's these kiddush clubs, with all the good intentions, just ask yourself, what do you think the Rebbe would say if you asked him, should we do this in our shul? Or we're doing this in our shul? You tell me what you think the Rebbe would say. In the middle of davening noch? Now if a person wants to do whatever they want to do, that's their personal thing. But to make it also to sanctify it, as if it's part of davening, as part of the holy approach. You don't want to come to shul, God forbid. It's your business. But to turn into that, as also, as you said, an example to children, completely mufrach. It's not even a question. Now, I said the approach to take this should be a approach. Should we yell at people? I've been to shuls where there's a kiddush club. I don't yell at people. I don't participate. But, you know, we talk about it. Again, I think it's education. I think people are crossing the line because they're justifying it. Again, is it the biggest sin of all sins? I'm not going to say that either. So I think people are giving themselves a license, a little freedom to be loose. It's a little social and so on. But at the end of the day, is that what the Rebbe wants of us? Is that acceptable? Now, this is even if there's no alcohol problem. Unfortunately and tragically, we have seen this has caused real alcoholic problems. Shalom bias issues between parents and children, between husband and wife. It's caused breakups. I personally am aware of them. So now we're talking much more than just, okay, like some people say, I know a I'd rather have a chsidishigehenim than a msnagdishigehenim. So it means I'm drinking, so, so I'll go to Gehenim because I did, but was at least a one. But here we're talking about already illness, addiction, that you're addicted to an object, that a substance controls you. But that a, the, the concept of chsidish, you control everything. You should be in control of yourself and your body and everything. And all the other problems that come from alcoholic abuse, alcohol abuse, and substance abuse. Not to mention how it spills over into many other problems, what alcohol is today in society, which is, of course, what the Rebbe was also alluding to. Alcohol today is not the alcohol sitting in this little shtetl in Lubavitch or in uh, Vitebsk or somewhere else or in the Chesidim Afabrenging. So the, the points are all well taken. My goal here is to make people aware, to bring it to the surf, to the table. I'm happy to hear comments. Someone has a different perspective, by all means. I'm not sure how you're going to work around the Rebbe's Gzeda, however. Now, the explanations I just gave, there's plenty of ways to explain it. But even without explanation, we have directive. There's not a matter that was left up to us. The Rebbe gave instruction and probably, and I probably for sure foresaw all the scenarios. Now again, would I choose this to be the battle of our time? Not necessarily. It's an issue, and since we're addressing this issue, it's an issue. But two wrongs don't make a right. Just because it's not the biggest issue doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. There could be much bigger issues. You know, I know very excessive people and fine people that drink, sometimes drink too much. And it's in good spirits. And they know how to even carry it. That still doesn't mean we can break the Rebbe's gzeda. 
and still doesn't mean that other people will learn from it in the wrong way. So that's what I, that's I think enough to speak about this topic, and if there, I'm sure there's going to be follow up on this. So please uh, feel free to write and comment at chassidusapply.com. You'll see there you can submit your comments and question. By the way, you wrote that you're putting yourself on the line. You're not because there's no name, and I didn't read a name, and I don't even have a name. So it may cost you the popular vote, but nobody can know who the popular who you are. So there's no loss of anything. If anybody's on the line, it's me which is perfectly fine. Firstly, I'm reading people's comments. Secondly, I'm presenting it as best as I understand it from the Rebbe's point of view. Again, I'd love to hear other perspectives and other comments, and we'll talk about it some more, I'm sure. And um, that's that. Okay. Next, boring holidays. So this is two final questions that are post-holiday blues issues. Holidays have become very boring and monotonous. What can I do to make them more meaningful? And another question, which it relates to it as well, in Chabad, Tehillim is said very often, Chitas, that's Tilim Tanya, Shabbos Mevarchim, and El, etc. It can often get very boring and doesn't feel very meaningful. Do you have any suggestions? So the one is about holidays, and one specifically more about Tehillim. So I've talked about this many times, how you, that's the whole point of Chassidus, the whole point of my life, Chassidus applied. How do you, invigorate and energize and revitalize ritualistic behavior, mechanical Judaism, robotic Judaism, because that's what it can become. If Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur Sukkot is done robotically, meaning just to be Yetzirah, it's quite boring and quite monotonous. Comes Nishmosa Daraisa, the soul of Teda. That what does a soul do to a body? A body can be a corpse, God forbid, without a soul. A soul is meant to energize it, to give it life. So you could have a person, for example, has a soul, but they walk around like a zombie. God forbid. A soul is that they're vibrant, they're alive, there's a sparkle, there's an energy. So the key is to learn chesedis and understand the neshama of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. And I've talked about this many times, to choose the right few prayers, you say it all, but a few of them where you really put your energy into it and prepare for it. And look at it as an exciting uh, experiment, if you wish, an exciting venture, journey of taking these ideas, taking these customs and rituals and understanding its deeper meaning and its spiritual relevance and psychological application and then it starts coming alive. You take the Dalad Minim. So we know we do Nanuyim, we bless it every morning, we Nanuyim, we shake it in all directions. But why? So when you hear that the four Minim, for example, correspond to four types of personalities, and we're joining them together in Aguda Achas, in one union. And we spread in all directions. So then it's about celebrating unity. Same thing with Sukkah. Just giving examples. Same thing with Shefer, Yom Kippur, Subchas Personalize it and understand the Chassidosh Neshamadik meaning. That's how you make things that are from boring to exciting. And the same thing is in education of children. That's how you make it exciting. You make it relevant, personal, and alive. Exciting. The same thing with Tehillim. Tehillim, yes, Tehillim is hard to understand the Pirush Amilis, but you could use a Tehillim if you're an English-speaking person with a translation, and maybe focus on a few prayer, a few of them. Look at the Chassidus, and you see the explanation of the Tzamech Tzedek on Tehillim, and other Maimodim, and it comes alive. You suddenly realize these words are very cryptic, very brief, but they carry tremendous potency, and tremendous messages, and tremendous music even, poetry, and melody. 
That's the way you do it. But it's not going to come automatically. If you want something not boring, you have to invest. You have to invest energy. I refer you to episodes 84 and episode 268 for more on this topic. Let's do two follow-ups. Then we'll do the Chassidus question and the three essays. Follow-up, two follow-ups. We talked in the last two episodes, 278 and 279, about ear piercing. And a letter from the Rebbe on the topic. That says why we justify it, even though a person is not supposed to mutilate or in any way hurt themselves, because of the, the, the temporary and short, brief pain outweighs, is over, overshadowed by the pleasure of a person feeling dressed up properly and feeling uh, special, feeling dignified. So the questioner writes, in reference to earrings, what difference does it make if the pain is worth it? What if I say the pain of tattoos is, worth also, is also worth it? I don't really understand how this is an answer. Thanks so much. So two things, few things. First of all, tattoos is specifically forbidden in the Tera. We're not talking about a sticker, by the way. Tattoos in the skin, etched in the skin, is specifically forbidden. And there's nowhere forbidden to make it to have an earring. As a matter of fact, the Rebbe brings, we know that the, the Mois, our matriarchs, wore, wore, wore jewelry. And you have the concept of piercing an ear by an evet, not for positive reasons, but still the concept is there. Tattoos are absolutely forbidden. So regardless of whether we understand why, even if a person has pleasure, the Torah says no, because it's Maise Knani, it's pagan behavior. But in addition, it's also mutilating and, and forever changing your body. Your body is sacred, the divine, creating the divine image. An earring does not create alteration that fundamentally changes a person's skin. It's a very small pierce hole. And as I said, there's a beauty part of it. It's beautifying. So there are things you can do. You're allowed to put on a crown on, on you. You're allowed to do certain things to your body to beautify it. Here, the issue is, is they're allowed to mutilate and pain, so the Rebbe says it overshadows it. So it's not just whether it, you're worth it. Someone says, I like pain, and I have no problem tattooing my whole body. Besides the fact that the Torah tells us what, where pain is allowed, where pain is not allowed, there's also the element of complete defacing and altering a human body. Now, the question about plastic surgery is another topic, not for now, and we'll talk about that. Another question came in, another follow-up to last 289, to episode 279. Why, it was about why is the chassidus of the Rebbe Marash and the Semach for the most part ignored? Ignored, does not learn as much as the others. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, regarding the learning of the more uncommon kavyochal parts of chassidus, so I addressed it in that episode, I'm just following up here. Some will say that the chassidus of the Mitla Rebbe or Tzemach Tzedek should not be learned by Bochum or even Anash because it is too abstract, etc. Even if someone is seen learning the Mamorim of the Rebbe Marash, he may be scolded and told to go learn something simpler, while there are Mamorim of other more com- commonly learned Rabbeim that are much more hard or deep. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand that at all, frankly, because, first of all, the Rebbe Rashab is quite deep in the Friedrich Rebbe. So I don't know if it's the depth. I explained this, that there's no excuse for not learning it, just we have to prioritize, and also some things were printed later. He, this, the writer continues, The Rebbe kocht in the Rebbe Marash and the Tzemach Tzedek's Torah very often. Even if it may be deeper and requires more patience and time, it should be emphasized. There's a major koch in the deep chassidus of the Rebbe Rashab. Why not on my mom the Mitla Rebbe or the Tzemach Tzedek? There's no reason that Bochum should be harassed by others for learning more obscure chassidus. So let's begin with this. Harassed? Scolded? Ridiculous. Someone's learning chassidus? Teda? 
Now, in the Seder Yeshiva, choices were made that Abayim gave directives what to begin with. My morning mother, Tanya, Tanya, So we have directives. This doesn't mean that the rest of Chassidus, God forbid, is not important. It's just, you can't learn, for example, Shas. We don't learn all the Mesechtas of Shas in Yeshiva. There's certain six, seven Mesechtas that are learned. Now I think it's a few less. That doesn't mean the rest of Shas is not to be learned. It's Kolat Teda, Teda is the same godly, divine Teda. So scolding and harassing is ridiculous. I don't know where that comes from. And yet, Mashpim, and with the guidance of the Rabbeim, gave us my modem that the Rebbe Rashaz, my modem, certain of them are very fundamental, allows entry into understanding Chassidus. This doesn't mean that Samach Tzedek does not, and the Rebbe Maraj does not. It's just their style may be different, as well as that they were not as accessible. They were all in manuscript, where the, the others were more spread out in Lubavitch, and then later uh, coming to America and Israel and so on. So thank you for your comments. Here's Chassidus' question. How does, so let me just, just conclude that point. So therefore, we have to learn all of Chassidus, as I said in the last episode. However, prioritizing, and that you should talk to Mashpia, your Rav, Mashpia, who can help the guide and prioritize what you should learn, what's earlier, what later, and so on, but like anything. But Mokim Shali Bechafetz, since I have, I have learned the Remarashas and the Tzemach Tzadis, I can tell you the picture is only complete when you know what all that Abayim said. Tzemach Tzadik style is, yes, more dense, because especially the Rishimus of the Tzemach Tzadik go into a lot of sources. You need a lot more explanation, whereas the Rebbe Rashab, and even the Rebbe Marash, for that matter, are much more expansive in explaining an idea. But that's each Rebbe has his style. The Mitla Rebbe, of course, is Recheves Hanor of Bina, expansive as it gets. Very profound, very deep, Imre Bina and others Svarim of the Rebbe, of the Mitla Rebbe. But all the Rabbeim are part of one big picture, like it is with Mishnah and Shas, Mishnah and Gemara. That's the bottom line. So there's no justification. I'm not going to go explain why we don't learn something. It's only technical reasons, or it was not available, or it's prioritizing. Okay. The Chassidus question is like this. How does Chassidus explain the Great Flood? So that's the theme of this week's chapter, the Mabel. Why did they love, live so long before the flood and then the years, then their years were shortened to 120 as we read in this coming Pasha and other elements of the flood. So let's put it this way. We mentioned before at the beginning of the program this Pasha begins, it says, and so on. Um, at the end of last Pasha already says but the rest of the world was it was full of corruption and crime and Hashem saw it necessary to cleanse that's why Chassidus calls it a mikveh 40 days is like the 40 cubits of a mikveh 40 days and 40 nights that the rain fell but he gave them plenty ample opportunity to do tshuva so really the whole model is a cleansing process the question really is, God knew what's going to happen. At the end of last week's chapter, it says that he regrets what he did. So Rashi even addressed it. It says there was a time when he was happy, and there's a time when it's sad. Chassidus explains, because God created the world in a way where he created a beautiful world. He created a world, a perfect world. But then he gave the world under the trust of the human being, God's partner, to make the world a home for the divine and ultimately bring Mashiach and Geula 
and the Shechina should be in Ganeiden and in the whole world. But as we learned in the beginning of Basilagani, what happened was with the sin of Eitz Adas and then the following subsequent generations, unfortunately due to free will, we have that choice because that's what Tachtenim is, that we have choice, it's not, we're not puppets. And unfortunately they chose the other path. And the divine became more concealed, first from the earth to the first heaven, to the second heaven, till the seventh heaven. It was Avram Avinu, ten generations after Noyach, that would reverse the process. But the ten generations to Noyach destroyed the world, as the Mishnah says. So God understood that the world has potential to be destroyed, and then it happened. But it's not a dead end. First of all, Noyach and his family were preserved because God was not interested in destroying existence. He was interested that it be done the right way. So the Rebbe has in Sikhs that the first generations lived long because it was a gift from above. It was like giving your children a gift, but they're not, they haven't earned it. So they got a gift, and they had like over almost a thousand years people lived. People lived hundreds and hundreds of years. But since they didn't earn it, it wasn't internalized. It could also corrupt it. That's how it is whenever you give a gift. The Mabul created a balance. Think of it like Shvira Sakelim. A shattering in order to rebuild. But now it's being rebuilt in a harmonious way. Now that we went through that first period. And in general, the first 26 generations, Tamat and Teda are in that category, in general. It's chesed of God. It's not through earned. Except the ovest. But, and when you don't earn something, you can easily take it for granted and abuse it, which is what happened. So the Mabel came to cleanse and restart. Press the restart button. So when Noyach came out with his family, it was to rebuild the world. And now, you're going to get 120 years. Because you don't deserve a thousand years. That's a gift. Now it has to come from your efforts. This is based on Sichus and the Rebbe and Noyach and Lech Lachan, Chilik Tazbav, volume 15 of the Sichus. So that's how it's seen. And... Um, so basically what we want to have is a gift from above, but then we want to internalize it through the work from below. And then combining together, that's how we transform the world and prepare it for the goal. Okay, let's now do the continued essays from 2019. So we're now in the top 70, 80 essays probably. These are essays that came in right before Pesach and the where we awarded the awards, and then we're now reviewing all these essays as in the order that they were marked, the order of the, the list of their marks. And many of them are very close, so as the excellent essays continue to be great essays. The first one is, Hayyem Arishin Sha'achri HaGerushim, which means the day after divorce. Sad topic. Liraz Nachmias, age 41, Mismeret Israel, A uh, independent uh, presenter, Bishitas Eitan. Not even sure what that is. It must be some approach, some psychological approach. Bishit of Eitan, it's called. And that's what the essay is about. So, this, the writer writes about this issue that there's no rules. It's sad. And one thing is for sure there's no way of return once a person has done it. goes on to say this essay is going to address 
a different way of looking at divorce and how to look at the most difficult moments as being actually the ones that can actually bring a couple back together again. Obviously giving a case against divorce. So not feeling that a relationship has to end. And explains the sheet of Eitan. Oh, here actually Eitan. What's Eitan? There's a footnote here. Let me just look it up. Psychologi Yehudas Peseches Aidei. Okay, it's a Jewish psychological approach presented by Achana Rus Abraham, who runs a Mochein Eitan, and I guess in Israel. It's based on Tanya, and using that, give tools and resources of how to deal with the most difficult elements of a relationship. So it's a very original essay in the sense that it deals with a really painful issue and uh, brings chassidus applied to using the Tanya chassidus how to look at the greatest challenges in life. Of course, one of them is the most is when a marriage is falling apart, God forbid. Brings Avram, Chesed, Yitzchak Gvura and their children, uh, Yishmol and Esav, how they distorted Chesed and Gvura. And continues on to um, how that can be applied to make my marriages work better. And ultimately how to divorce yourself actually from negative things. That's a surprising twist here. Okay. It's a pretty long essay with a lot of additions. Very, very recommended, especially if you're dealing with any topics that are related to this. And uh, I want to thank you for this, this essay. I enjoyed it and found it very valuable, especially in the work I do. And I will definitely use points and some of the sources cited in this essay. The next essay, Ketzad Megashrim al ben How do you bridge the schism between the desired and the actual? In other words, what you want and where you are, according to Chassidus. Menachem Endla Arabov, age 29, Elat, Israel. Shliach in the city of Elat, the southern city of Elat in Israel. So this essay deals exactly with that, how to bridge the two, the things we aspire to, and with the actual reality of where we are. And uses Chassidus to do this by understanding the nature of the spirit, of the soul. Why is it that we dream? And then how do we bring that dream into reality using the principles of Tzimtzum and Seder Shtalshlis or the world that were created. Another very good essay using real Hasidic concepts of the whole cosmic order to uh, explain this concept with practical applications. And finally, Odom Pnimi Viragua, the inner and peaceful man. Yaakov Tvikola, age 44, Beitari Lit, Israel. Um, a teacher in Talmud Teira of Chassid Bayan in Beitar. Okay. So this essay is, um, begins one of the difficult challenges of our generation. I'm translating from the Hebrew, so just bear with me. Is the busyness and the pressures that we all have today. Technology has only increased that, even though it's made things easier, but it's also put a lot of pressure, and it's very intense. So the question is, how do you find inner peace? 
in, a turbul- in turbulent times. So he brings interesting stories, and from Teda Sholem, where the, where the whole story with the Rebbe Rashab, about how when the Bochum sang quickly, instead of being a primi and being there entirely. The idea of multitasking in a negative way where you're constantly running to do something else. And based on that, develops a whole principle of how we deal and find that inner peace. It's a very nice essay. A lot of interesting points and topics. And I thank you for that as well. So there we have it. The three essays, which is also a way of honoring all the work that people have put in and invested in creating these essays. So, my friends, with this we conclude My Life episode 200, My Life Chassidus Applied episode 280. Everyone should have a good gibench to Yarva. Yaakov Hol Chadarke, the journey should go peacefully, should be an integrated one, should be one that brings all the power and energy and inspiration into our daily routines and our lives. And they should not be boring or monotonous, but they should be alive and dynamic. We understand the purpose for which we are here and we wake up every morning excited to fulfill the purpose, the mission for which we were created. We're here every Sunday now. Now the holidays are over. Every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone have a very blessed week. A blessed Chodesh Cheshven, carrying Tishrei into Mar Cheshven. Be well.